Yes, as um, Michael said, uh, we'd plan to speak from this passage, which does touch on money, but don't get too nervous, um, just because it was the next passage in James. That's what we do here. We just work our way through. We run into all sorts of passages that we wouldn't normally speak from, I think, too, and it's just excellent. Here we are at James 4. If you've got a Bible with you, that would be helpful. At the last section, verse 13. I've never seen one of these, but they always look very impressive. Let's see if I can get this thing going. See those thing? Icebergs. I think the, the two on the left are real. The two on the right, I think, are sort of artist's impression. But you know what they say about icebergs, which is true, that the great mass of the iceberg is under the water. What you see and what you might notice and be impressed by is really not the half of it. And the whole thing wouldn't float properly were it not for the great root and base that it has. Now, when we come to a letter like James, it's got all sorts of practical advice. And people could fall into the very common mistake of thinking that Christianity is all about advice, wisdom, ethics. So people who think they've got a reasonably good ethical system think they don't need to go to church because they've already got that working. But of course, that's got very little to do with the heart and soul of it. The, the, the root behind the specific uh, calls to action are crucial. You cannot live the Christian life or make sense of the Christian life unless you've got the great heart and soul of it, which is about God and what God is like and what you're really like and what God has in mind for people like you and me. So it really is a bit like the iceberg. We're going to look at the top part, but it will keep taking us back underward to remind us why Christianity is really a sort of reality therapy. There's, there's wisdom, but the wisdom all grows directly out of the nature of reality. What the Bible does for us is it gives us kind of a ladder which you can climb up as you read it and then look on life and see it from God's perspective as it really is and not just as the most powerful voices in our culture want us to believe it is, which is almost entirely false, the vision that our culture gives of it. So that's what we're doing here. We're listening to what we believe is the Holy Spirit's work through James. James had a fairly impressive family. His mother was the Virgin Mary. His uh, father was Joseph, the famous carpenter. He had a number of brothers and sisters, but the one you've probably heard of is Jesus. So it's a fairly impressive family he's come from. And, and you will, if, you, if we had time, we're not going to do this, you can find so many ways in which James echoes his brother's teaching quite explicitly and quite remarkably. We're going to listen today to two lessons and why they make sense and why they're relevant to our life. This sermon really should change us a bit, I would think, unless we do what James is desperate for us not to do in chapter 1, which is to listen and not put into practice, which is to deceive ourselves. So let's pray that God would help us now. Father in heaven, we gather together as your family we thank you for your forgiveness and mercy and your patience with each one of us. And we do pray now, Father, that by your Holy Spirit we would hear your voice, that we would leave here wiser than we've come in. Help us, Lord, to have the humility that comes from wisdom and gives birth to wisdom. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at the passage that was read from James 4 and then finishing at James 5, verse 6, it's clearly two sections with exactly the same introduction. They're, these two parts are very obviously related. They start the same way. Now listen, you who say, 
And then chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. So this is an unusual way. So he's saying, come on, listen. And of course, what James is saying, when you, make, when you listen, make sure you also then put it into practice, but at least hear what's being said. Now, who's he speaking to? Well, to two related groups. The aspirational rich and then those who are really already thoroughly rich. Listen, he says in verse 13. Now listen, you who say, so see if this is, listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Right? These are people who are planning. Uh, It's right to say that um, in many ways to fail to plan is to plan to fail. The Bible is not against planning. In fact, in a few minutes, it's going to talk about when you plan. But there's a certain way in which humans often plan, which is pretty strongly condemned here by the Apostle James. He calls it evil in verse 16, and he calls it sinful in verse 17. Listen, you who say, now what's wrong with this sort of saying? Well, I'm going to do this, we're going to go there, we're going to make some money there, we're going to... That's nothing wrong with making money. You buy food with that and a hole to live in and places like that. It's part of life. Well, the problem is the way that they're talking and therefore thinking. Listen to what he says in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. Now, what's so boastful and so arrogant about this way of thinking? Well, just because he says today or tomorrow, we're going to go here, there, we're going to make money, and it's going to be great. What's wrong with that? Well, it's just unrealistic. Right? It's just choosing to ignore one of the most obvious facts that our culture will very much help us to ignore. Listen to the reality check in verse 14. Why? You, don't even, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Right? To say nothing of the next year. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And then he gets a bit rude here. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So he's saying, don't, don't plan as if you've got control of everything. You actually control very little of the major things. He says, your life is a mist. Now, I don't like being called that. I don't feel like a mist. I feel a little mistier than I was perhaps 10 years ago. But, you know, except that Alison needed the kettle to grow some coffee this morning, I was going to bring the kettle and turn it on and and let it produce some mist. Because that's the word. It's It's not a thick, substantial fog mixed with a bit of pollution. It's not that word, it's just a mist. It's like a bubble. I, I do love you know, bubbles. You see it at various fairs and that someone blowing bubbles. They're beautiful things. And, and they go up and they, you know, they're just lovely. That's you. Next time you see a bubble, I think that's my life. Pretty, shining, light, poof, gone. Some bubbles last for a full 30 seconds, some for about 10 seconds. And God wants you to know that is you. You are a mist. In chapter 1, he says, you're like a desert flower that blooms. The way, the way the desert flowers work is, there's nothing, the water comes, boom, these things grow rapidly, beautiful little flowers, but they're often dead by the afternoon. Very short life cycle, glorious, beautiful, but very short-lived. That's you. You lack substance. You're fragile. 
Now, I don't mean to be rude, it's me as well. And that's what he's saying. That's reality. Now, every now and then we run into it and we're shocked by it. So I, yesterday, Alice and I saw an old friend, Anne Page, whose husband was the minister at uh, Western across there. And he'd had about 10 years of pretty miserable ill health and things like that. And he'd survived, sometimes semi-miraculously, one of the recoveries and how they had analysed it. But he was having a small bit of surgery just to clear out the sinuses that had been all blocked up from some of the medicines and cancer treatments he'd had. And the family was greatly relieved because he was getting back to health and vigour after a decade of miserable stuff. As, as some of you heard, he said to his wife as he was sort of leaving the hospital after the little surgery, I've been such a good patient, I deserve a Domino pizza. He's a classy dude, you know. A Domino's pizza, well, okay, you lash out. Yeah. And then he was in the foyer and he passed out and died. Had a heart attack in the hospital. What better place to have a heart attack? And yet they could do nothing for him. And Jason, my friend, just died like that. Anne's husband died like that. His four children gone. And uh, one of the children said, this, this doesn't... We knew he was in un under risk a couple of years ago, but not now. We're unprepared. We're like a mist. I've told you before that one of the things that kick-started my serious thinking about God and life and eternity is this whole thing true, this Christianity thing, was when a mate of mine in year 12 drowned. A really good swimmer. They have got not the faintest clue what killed him. He is a much better swimmer than I am. But his brother finds him at the bottom of the little family pool. And I won't go on all the people I've known who've died, but another friend of mine, David Patrick, he was going for a very brief bushwalk, waiting for an appointment, and they found him dead on the path, and in the autopsy, they worked out that he died before he hit the ground. And they have no idea what killed him. David was a slim bloke, not a bloke like me. He deserves to die, like, you know, out, out of nowhere. But he was a slim, healthy bloke. And I'd never heard the phrase SADS, Sudden Adult Death Syndrome. They've done every possible test. And suddenly, David's gone. Shane Warne, all sorts of people, they just... And we, we're caught by surprise, and it's right to be surprised, but we shouldn't be shocked. This is what the Bible says is true, and a moment's thought says it's true. Therefore, when we're making plans, I mean, look at what COVID did to us. Some invisible bug, right? and, and suddenly all our plans are ruined. Right? Uh, and yet we pretend we live as if we're masters of our own destiny, and we're just not. That silly poem that goes on about that, it's just silly, right? Because again and again, we discover we're not masters of our own destiny. We are victims of the foolishness of others, genetic things that are problematic, all sorts of things. We still make rightful decisions and plans. But he's saying here, it's just arrogant boasting when you talk like that. And you oughtn't to be involved as, as a follower of Jesus in arrogant boasting. Now, it might be what you've learned to do. And you might have been taught this in some motivational class. You should speak positively about your future. All that sort of nonsense. Right? Well, you can do that if you like, but it's not Christian. Instead, he says in verse 15, what should we do? You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. See, he's not saying you shouldn't plan. But he's saying up front and central should be the reality that it all hangs on the sovereign will of God. Do I have to do that? Well, the next verse. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, for, him, for them it is sin. 
I take it as Christian people, we should be saying, God willing. Right? They used to, Christians used to, and I was telling someone from South Africa this morning, they're saying in South Africa, they still often will get a letter with DV after, you know, after some suggestion of a plan, which is the Latin for God willing. Deus Felicio or something like that. Right? And I, I tend to put that in letters. In fact, I didn't do it once. I was writing an email to a, a circle of my friends and some of them weren't Christian, so I left it off. And I felt a bit pathetic doing it because I think it's right to do it because even if my friend doesn't get it or doesn't like it, God has said we should speak like that and it will help them to see that we're not practical atheists. We understand that God rules over all things. So if we're not used to doing that, rather than arrogant boasting about our plans, wise to be humble and therefore realistic. Well, I think I'll leave it there for that one. Um, let's look at the second lesson. Ooh, this is, if, you, if you listen to what James says, he does sound as if he's in a bad mood. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you bit negative your wealth has rotted the moths have eaten your clothes your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire you have hoarded wealth in the last days now we're to take the word of God seriously aren't we not not just the nice promises I know the plans I have for you plans to do good etc etc beautiful verses but to take these other verses what on earth is going on here well I don't think there's any reason to doubt that in chapter 5 here uh, James is doing a classic and a typical prophetic denunciation of sinners uh, you can find it in Ezekiel 27 to 32. You can find it in the book of Isaiah. You can find a couple of chapters of it at the beginning of the book of Amos. You can find it in the teaching of Jesus. Where he says, woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Right? Even though he's not in all those cities at the one time. And, and what's going on here is the prophet speaks to the people of God as if he is speaking to, say, the Pharaoh, which a lot of the Ezekiel one is. And the Pharaoh certainly did not... He wasn't listening in through Skype or something like that. Right? But the, what the prophets do, they would announce the destruction of someone as if they were talking to them. It functioned as a great joy and comfort for the people of God who were being oppressed. We're told in chapter 1, on chapter 2, sorry, that it was rich people who were persecuting the church. And often you feel powerless before the rich and powerful and vacuous. And what he's saying here is these particular rich people are in all sorts of trouble. Uh, the main thing we're going to come back to is at the end of verse 3, but you can see how ruthless they are, and the Bible does not consider all rich people condemned by God, which is a relief for most of us, I think, because most of us know that in terms of the world, we're in the top 3 or 4%. I know I certainly am, and I would think most of you are as well. We are amongst the wealthy, but not all wealthy people are the same. It's simplistic and silly and un untrue. There are some people who become rich through hard, honest work and service. They work hard, they work long, they work clever, but that's not these people. These people are ruthless. Look at what he says about them.
Verse 4, look, the wages you, pay, you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the days of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. It's very strong. These people are landowners. They're not people who are aspiring to be rich after they've done a bit of business. They are rich. They don't just have a farm. They have a farm that employs many labourers. And they don't pay them properly. They steal from them, right? Because they're coveting. They're breaking any number of the Ten Commandments. And therefore, he says in verse 6, you're murdering them. Now, that might sound like a little a bit of melodrama. But if you look at a culture that where many people lived as day labourers and you basically got enough for a day labouring on a farm to feed your family for a day. So if you work a couple of days and the rich guy doesn't pay you, you could be in danger of starving. That's why in Deuteronomy 24, I won't read it to you, but you can read it. It's a fantastic chapter. Leviticus 19, there's very powerful condemnation of people who don't pay their day labourers before the sun sets. And God will rip your head off if you do that. He really hates that, where the rich and the powerful abuse the weak and the vulnerable. The judgment of God in the Bible is normally a cause of rejoicing. Many of us as Christians, we sort of a bit squeamish about it. But it's fundamentally in, in the scriptures, overwhelmingly, good news. Because we live in a world that is reeking with bloodshed and injustice. And the unjust and the cruel and the powerful and the rich seem to get away with it again and again and again, as it has been. It's always been like that. And what's happening here is James is doing the classic, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's doing the prophetic, he's saying, they're dead men walking. He's not calling on them to repent. He's announcing what happens to people like this. It's very strong, it's very powerful that they will suffer. These are the rich and the ruthless. But let me take you to the heart of the problem that he sees. The heart of the problem is at the end of verse 3. He says, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's not very pleasant. And of course, James knows, like you probably know, that gold does not corrode. Right? But from the perspective of heaven, it's momentary. Right? The foolishness of someone trying to take gold into heaven. Right? Gets a deal, they can actually take a bag of something with them and they take their gold ingots to heaven and... Um, they get there and they discover the streets are paved with it. It's like Asheville. Who, who takes a bag of Asheville with them somewhere? Right? It's just useless. But this is saying even, even your gold will rust. Everything will just rot as a testimony against you. But here's the problem. You have hoarded wealth. That's ugly. And it's ridiculous when you have the conclusion. which You've hoarded wealth in the last days. We'll come back to that. Just for a moment's reflection, I think it's helpful if you work out if you're more like the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea. Which are you like? Sea of Galilee, let's have a look. Just let me show you what I mean. This, this is a map. Uh, here's Turkey's up here, okay? Egypt's down here. Iraq and Iran, Syria, okay? And here's uh, the land that Jesus spent his time in, apart from a little time down in Egypt as a refugee. And there's the Sea of Galilee, which he hangs around quite a bit. That's where he did the calming of the ocean, the calming of the sea. And then the Jordan River runs into it, 
through it, down, runs into the Dead Sea. Um, and I want to suggest to you, rich people, like, in a sense, us, I guess, are either like the Dead Sea or like the Sea of Galilee, or you might like to work out where you are in the map. But this is the one that he's talking about. The problem with these people is that they're like the Dead Sea. They hoard. They gather more. Right? They spend half their life gathering and the rest of their life defending and protecting their stuff. So that's a similar sort of map. You can see the water comes in here, flows out there. The Dead Sea, it just comes and dies there. It's 400 metres below sea level. It's the lowest part on the earth. And it's very deep. And what happens is the water just sits there and over hundreds of years of evaporation, it's just so salty. If you drink a few mouthfuls, it will nearly kill you. You can, you can float in it. It's, it's a lot of fun. So here, you know, there's, there's some, some of you will have done this. You, they're not particularly light people, buoyant, right? They're just, there's so much salt, just, you just bob up in it. Uh, it's, a fairly, it's a fairly tough part of the world. Nice to visit, but not nice to swim in or live in. Unlike the Sea of Galilee, this here is some fish that Alison and I caught during the week. I'm just pretending it's the Sea of Galilee. No, this picture really is from the Sea of Galilee. Even now, although the Sea of Galilee is in trouble because of it's, it's too much water is being drawn out of the whole system and there's squabbles going on. But they, this is still a recent catch of fish from the Sea of Galilee. You know, if you lived in Rome, one of the things if you were wealthy was to get sea from, uh, fish from the Sea of Galilee. They were famously beautiful. And they'd salt them and send them in barrels and off they'd go. It took ages to get there. Uh, it, it, it's famously abundant. And the, the land around it was beautiful. It was one of the most beautiful and bountiful parts of the promised land around the Sea of Galilee. And I'm suggesting human beings, particularly rich people, are like one or the other. Um, this is what he's urging us not to be like. Right? You remember Scrooge McDuck, right? He just had this great mountain of gold right, that he would protect from the Beagle Brothers. Right? And he just, it didn't seem to do much with it. He just loved having it. He's a hoarder. And, the, and I, you know, I know many of you are very, very generous. But just keep an eye on how much of you is also a hoarder. That is, the thing to do is to get it and to keep it right? because it'll keep you safe. It won't keep you safe. That's why we get so angry when we get a disease that we can't fix. Because we've got all this money. We've got access to the, the best specialists. We've been paying a lot of money in healthcare. What, what, what do you mean they can't fix it? And it's interesting. I think one of the things that helps us work out how deluded we are about how much we're in control of life is how we respond when we get blocked or disappointed. So when COVID happened and some of our holidays got rearranged, if you get, I mean, you get disappointed, but if you get angry, it's almost certainly an indication that you think you're in charge. And it oughtn't, but no, you've never really been in charge. You've just been lucky. And that's how it's worked out. But hoarding right, is exactly what these people... You have hoarded wealth. That's not why God gives it, so you can just get it all into a big puddle and keep it and play with it and pretend that you're safe. Fear is the reason we're so greedy. Fear is the reason we have so little to give. We need to have mountains of resources for our retirement. Right? And then our kids can squabble over it. Right? Uh, and, and yet, as we look, you know, it, it's not ours anyhow. We're just stewards of it. But hoarding, just 
keep money's got this gravitational power on us and it's why Jesus the only other God Jesus talks about is money and I may have shared with you there's a very impressive Christian doctor up at Port Macquarie um, who's, who's staying up there partly because, although he said it's no great sacrifice staying at Port Macquarie, but he said the reason he didn't take some of the huge offers he was given to come back and be a specialist, a cancer specialist in Sydney was because he said one of the horrors of getting cancer in, in, in a town is that you've got to travel so far to get help. Um, and it just makes it so much the harder. So he said, no, as a Christian, I think I should stay here. But one of his guys he grew up with, also a Christian, uh, rang him a few years ago in desperation. And, his, and um, this guy's wife wouldn't let him talk to the, the doctor in Port Macquarie because he was sick. And he said, no, I have to talk to him. She said, well, you can't talk to him. He's very sick. And here was the guy's problem. A guy, who, I don't know if he was Christian, but he had been Christian. And they'd always said, we're not going to become those sort of specialists who make billions of dollars, find that some narrow area that we can make a fortune, work nine to five or nine to four, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to really be servants with this stuff. And he just bought a house beside the water at Hunter's Hill as a good young medical specialist could with, with a wharf and a sailing boat. And well, he was just about to buy it. But then his conscience twinged him. And he realised, this is what I'd promised I'd never be. And he said, I'm going to have to work such long hours now to pay it, abandon ship for the family in order to buy this thing. And he could feel the... I, I feel sorry for this guy. He could feel the gravitational pull smashing him into the sun that was going to burn him up. But he couldn't... So he rang his old mate, hoping that perhaps he could say a magic word that would free him. There's a, there's a power in having money. There's a sense of safety in having a huge resource backed up. We hoard it because we're frightened. And then we get angry because it's very often a delusion. Right? Like the rich fool. I have much stored up for many years to come. I'll eat, drink and be merry. And God says to him, you're a fool. You're a loser. You're an idiot. You're an unrealistic escapist. Tonight you die. And then who gets all this stuff that you've got much stored up for many years to come? Right? Because it's completely unnecessary to be seduced in that way. Hoarding is the thing which God says is terribly dangerous, but, but almost the default position we have with money. Gold. We want to keep it and keep it and keep it. And anyone who gives us a chance to be generous. By the way, I do want to stress, this has nothing to do with the building. Right? <laughs> Uh, if you look at the history on Alvanto of the service, we, we put a thing in on Tuesday saying perhaps there'll be a notice about the building. Then we were told on Thursday that it wasn't going to happen. And then we were told on Friday that it had happened. So head office completed the task. It's amazing. And, 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 and they got it back to us. And um, It's okay. So it's just a coincidence that we're on this. So you'd be mistaken if you think this is just... It, it's just James saying, don't be a hoarder. Don't be like these clowns, these losers. Well, what should we be like then? Well, the Bible's really clear. Um, here in 1 Timothy 6, is a wonderful passage to read from the Apostle Paul. Uh, we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. That gets said at, the, at, the, um, at funerals. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Will we? Food and clothing? Yes, we will. Those who want to get rich, like the people who say, we're going to do all this business and make them, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Uh, 
You'll have friends who once knew what mattered in life and have lost it because they've become so successful. Right? Tragic failures. Right? We fall into all sorts of dangers and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, it's none of us, have wandered from the faith and perverted themselves, pierced themselves with many griefs. This is Deuteronomy 8, which if ever there was a chapter that should be the National Australian Bible reading, it's Deuteronomy 8, where God warns them while they're still in the desert, about to go to the promised land. He does this a few times and he says, be careful that when I bless you with lands you didn't, you know, you didn't make and wells you didn't dig and houses you didn't dig and vineyards you didn't place, be careful that when I bless you and your gold and your silver increase, you forget the Lord. Being rich, which many of us are, is a tremendously dangerous blessing. And if you don't face that, friend, you'll be eaten up by it. It's a blessing. But it comes with massive responsibilities and a danger of becoming a hoarder. That's not the way forward. Here's the thing. I remember when I first read this as a young Christian, I was annoyed because I was convinced that you couldn't be rich and be a Christian, right? Because how could you be rich and be The world's full of need. Anyhow, then I think, hang on, he doesn't give advice to liars, thieves, you know, etc., etc., kidnappers. He doesn't give advice to the rich. So presumably you can be Christian and rich. Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant. Look at me. Not to put their hope in wealth, which is what we do. We're much calmer if we've got that big nest egg. We've got to preserve it and protect it. Our hope is in our wealth. We're anxious if we don't have anything in the account, which is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our, our enjoyment. Command them, this is the, the command to the rich, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. It's the opposite of hoarding. In this way, they will lay up a treasure for themselves with a firm foundation for the coming age. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's the opposite. Rich, be rich in good deeds. Be generous. You'll find, and we've got, we're different as people, we've different families. Is it in our DNA? Some of us are by nature hoarders. Often it's because we're by nature fearful instead of trusting God. But we're called on to be rich in good deeds, generous, sharing. It's the opposite of the hoarder. It is as John Wesley said, many of you will know this great statement, John Wesley, a world changer under God. He said, earn as much money as you can, save as much money as you can, so you can give as much money as you can. Uh, he was at one stage the most highly paid man in England right, because of all the publications and books he'd written and the people reading them. And he died leaving almost nothing in his will. Because right? he'd just done what you do when you're following Christ. Not to be deluded right, that this is the real game. As many of you know, uh, Alice and I bought a little house down at uh, Terrera, down near Nowra. If anybody wants a couple of days away, you come and get it before we rent it out. I got a lovely uh, email from a friend, a person who I love very dearly, and they said, I'm so glad that you've got a forever home. I thought, oh, seriously? I know you love me and I know you mean well, but that is so silly. It's one night. 
We know it for a few months now. It's just one night you get in your home of home, your dream home that you live for. It's one night in a hotel room in eternity. And, to, for, for, and I get it, someone who doesn't know God and is pretending that this life is all there is, desperately trying to believe that, that there's no eternity. To call it a forever home, I mean, I really like it. And I'm hoping one day we'll maybe get to stay in it for more than three or four days in a row. It's fantastic. But it's not a forever home. It's a one night in a hotel home. That's why you can live with a less than perfect house. Like if you were staying in a hotel and you didn't like the carpet, you could probably put up with it for one night. Right? We've got to see things as they are. And all the wealth we've been given is not so we can be upwardly mobile, it's so we can be downwardly generous. Either that or we don't know Jesus. This is who he is. This is what God is like. He's generous. And look, let me take it to this amazing verse, which we will come back to because that's our theme for Christmas. The riches to rags, baby. I've tried to translate this from the, from the original language as sort of as literally as I can. Uh, so the word order is a bit strange, but you get the punch of it, I think. He's speaking to Christians in the context of being generous. And he says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace is the generosity the undeserved generosity, the opposite of hoarding. He said, Christian, we know something of the grace, the amazing grace. That for your sake, he was impoverished being rich. Now we translate it in English and we make the English flow a bit better. That though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. It reads better that way. But you can get some of the punch. What do we need to know about the grace of Jesus? He was impoverished for your sake. Though he was rich. The manger, the cross. He was impoverished. Why? So that you, through his poverty, might be enriched. The first, the first sort of verb is the impoverishment of Jesus. The purpose of it is the enrichment of us. Because he's not a hoarder. Even though he has every right to say, no, this is mine. I deserve this. They don't deserve generosity. They don't deserve it. But that's, that's what it is to be a Christian, is that we've tasted something of this outrageous grace. We can hardly believe it's true. It's hard to keep a handle on it. We keep thinking that because of our sinfulness, well, he can't love me. Yeah, he does, he does, he does. That's what he's like. He's so gracious. And that's what, he, that's what he gives to us. And the call is to be humble, to not be a practical atheist when you talk about your plans and impress people with your plans to do this and that and the other, but just to say, God willing, this is our plan. And then also to make sure we never become hoarders. We don't get sucked into the gravitational pull of cash and money. But we continue to be like the Sea of Galilee. Water comes in, swishes around, water goes out. Uh, and to move as far and far away as we can from ever being like the Dead Sea that is dying and kills things that go into it. So that's uh, two little life lessons. Humility, unhoarding generosity. Uh, like Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the wonderful clarity of your word. Thank you for the bluntness of your word to us. Um, thank you that you've not left us to drift as just mass-produced parts of our sad, selfish community. Help us, Lord God, to rejoice in your grace and to be more and more set free uh, to live our life generously and not as hoarders, to be like the Sea of Galilee, teeming with life rather than the Dead Sea. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.